According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11. We uh, are still, we're in verse 11 this morning. We've been in this chapter, uh, oh, two or three weeks now already, and um, Going through these Old Testament characters has been a blessing. It's going to continue to be a blessing as we deal with Abraham and Sarah as we move on, get to uh, uh, Isaac and Joseph and Moses and the remainder of the characters in this, in this chapter. Not only is it a blessing for its own sake and related to what we've been studying here in the book of Hebrews, but it all has also lit a fire uh, that has left me under conviction that when we finish the Hebrew series, that the next book study we will do will be, in fact, the book of Genesis. And so pray for that. Uh, we'll be going into creation. Uh, we'll be going into the fall of the angels, the rebellion of the angels, the fallen angelic earth, the restoration of the earth. Yes, I still teach gap theory. I know that I don't even call it theory, uh, that um, a lot of folks have abandoned it in the last 20 years. But uh, to me, it is the reconciliation of the angelic fall as it relates to the purpose for Adamic humanity. And so we'll be teaching that. We'll be teaching Nephilim, we'll be teaching the fallen angels, uh, all the things that go into that. And uh, I'm thrilled that, uh, that the Lord is providing that for this congregation. So also, and then of course, the Abrahamic covenant, which is foundational for the covenants that follow and uh, vital that we uh, are solid and not fall into the realms of replacement theology where we think the church can just abscond with Israel's blessings. That's not our place, and uh, we're wrong to, uh, to get into those realms. So stay tuned for that. Uh, for today, however, we're not yet done with Hebrews. We still have 11, 12, and 13 to go, and uh, chapter 11 is where we are this morning. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer. We can call upon our Father in His faithfulness to bless our time of study. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for today, the blessings that you've laid before us. We've already reaped abundant blessings, uh, Father, in, in uh, the missionary report from the Ulrichs and the, the music blessing that was just provided for us. And in so many ways, Father, uh, you are, are marvelous beyond anything we could ask or think. And we call upon your faithfulness once again as we study to show ourselves approved. We thank you for the teaching ministry of God, the Holy Spirit. We thank you for the grace of God that allows us to even be here this morning. This is a grace provision. Not, not one of us has earned it or deserved it. But here we are to humble ourselves before the authority of your word. And we pray that the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit would open the eyes of our understanding. Give us the ears to hear, Father, and the prepared heart to receive the word implanted. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so we have been observing the by faith statements. It is by faith, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, and by it, by means of faith, believers walking in faith, we have the testimonies that are offered. The approval that's spoken there is the witness that is born. That God himself bears witness when we walk by faith. The scriptures bear witness. The angels bear witness. Our fellow believers bear witness. And uh, these are the witnesses that the Old Testament saints obtained as uh, they walked by faith in the Old Testament. And so we've gone through Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham. We continue with Abraham this morning as we look at Sarah. 
And uh, it says, by faith, even Sarah herself. And uh, I'm going to let it go with that. There's, there's actually some uh, complicated exegesis related to this. It may actually be still a reference to Abraham's faith. By faith, Abraham, together with barren Sarah, received ability to conceive. In either event, they were working together in the process, which was better than they had done with the Hagar episode. This is now Abraham and Sarah together walking by faith, laughing together, praying together, and having a child together that is the child of promise that uh, the Lord has given. And so verse 11, by faith even Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Faith is always grounded not in the strength or the fervency with which we hold it. You can fervently believe a lie and that faith is worthless. But when your faith is grounded in God, then your faith is infinite because God himself is the eternally, infinitely faithful one. And she considered that God is faithful. And this is what we can apply in our own application. All right, now let me get my slideshow advanced here if I've done this correctly. There we are, verses 11 and 12. So she considered him faithful who had promised. Does the promise seem unbelievable? Well, that's not an issue. Is the one who promised believable? That's the issue, right? Because when it comes to our salvation, the, the promise that I could, have, I could be righteous or the promise that I could live with God in heaven forever, that seems pretty unbelievable. But the one who made the promise is believable. And so we trust him for what he has promised. Our faith is always in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's what we see here as well. She considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, there was born even of one man and him as good as dead. And that's the expression. And we accept it as the idiom comes across, as good as dead. We understand this is not only related to his advancing years. He's 100 years old. He's going to live to 175. So it's not like he's on death's doorstep. He still has a good 75 years in front of him, but he is sexually dead. And that's the concern here related to her being barren, being beyond the time, the normal time of life, the time of conceiving. And, uh, and he likewise has, uh, in the pre-Viagra era, he uh, is running low on options pertaining to, uh, to that. And so since he has not been, uh, he and Sarah have not been engaged in the marital relations department for who knows how many years, uh, I even consider that part of God's discipline for the, for the Ishmael uh, issue, that uh, when he took it upon himself to have a baby with Hagar, that that was, that was so out of bounds that the consequences then uh, was the, the sexual death that God then assigned. In any event, as good as dead, the, as many descendants as the stars of the heaven in number and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. And so this is what we're dealing with here in this illustration. Sarah laughed, she denied laughing, and then she defended laughter Three stages of Sarah's experience. She laughed, she denied laughing, and then she defended laughter. Of course, Isaac means laughter, and that's how he got his name. And uh, so just hold your uh, finger here or leave your church bulletin tucked there in Hebrews 11. And let's go back to Genesis 17 and refresh our minds on this episode. We uh, dealt with this last week from Abraham's perspective. Now we can look at it from Sarah's perspective. 
Genesis 17, verses 15 and following. God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. Not only was Abram renamed Abraham, but Sarai was renamed Sarah. I will bless her, and indeed I will give you a son by her, heirs together of the grace of life. And this was God's plan. And even when he, when he permits the polygamy and permissive will with leveret marriage and other concubine situations, it was never the ideal and it was never the original. The original was the two shall become one flesh. And that's the pattern that uh, God has provided for marriage. So I will bless you, uh, bless her. And indeed I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her. And she shall be a mother of nations, kings of peoples, will come from her. And so Ishmael is not the answer. Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Now it's unfortunate that uh, Greek and Hebrew manuscripts don't get us, give us the tone of voice uh, because there's different ways you can laugh. You can laugh with a skeptical disbelief or you can laugh with an amazement and a wonder, celebrating how hilarious it is that God does what he does, choosing the foolish thing to shame the wise, the weak things to shame the strong, and the old things to shame the young, I guess we might say, uh, the impotent things to, to shame uh, whatnot. All right. And so this is what he's doing. And he's laughing. Sarah also laughs, but then she denies it. And this is uh, a curious commentary here. Hebrews is a curious commentary on Genesis. Because if we didn't have Hebrews, none of us would preach Genesis the way that Hebrews does. And that's uh, significant, I think, in my mind. So we'll discuss that as well. So, will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Uh, Ishmael at this point is is over 12. He's approaching 14 or 16 thereabouts. And uh, and Abraham has a love for this this young man, this son. And he wants this son to become a believer and to walk before the Lord. But God said, no. But Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son and you will call his name Laughter, Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. And there's so many things we can glean from this. And we, we see it in this case. We see it in the next generation as well. When Isaac has a favoritism for Esau and uh, Esau is not even saved and yet they have a rapport, they have a fellowship based upon uh, you know, their hunting trips and other things they like doing in the outdoors. And uh, the favoritism for the children becomes problematic in each of these generations as the scripture describes it. I think the Ishmael example is also problematic too because God had made a promise and then Isaac, and then Abraham and Sarah felt that they needed to help God out, that God needed help to fulfill his promises. And let me tell you, God needs no help in keeping his promises. And God doesn't make a promise and then wring his hands up there in heaven hoping that you and I can come along and, and somehow bail him out or somehow make good on, on what God said he was going to do. No, the issue is God said it, he has to do it. And if we consider him faithful, we're going to watch faithfully in faith rest, and we're going to watch him do it. That's our blessing, to claim the promises and watch God make good on his promises. Now there is some, uh, some grace related to Ishmael. He says, now as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I will bless him, not because he's earned it or deserved it, but because Abraham prayed for it. 
And in response to Abraham's prayer, Ishmael gets blessed. Even though he's not a child of the covenant, he is still a son of Abraham. And in Abraham shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So I have heard you, behold, I will bless him. I will make him fruitful and multiply him exceedingly. He shall become the father of 12 princes, and I will make him a great nation. The Ishmael nation was formed actually before the Jewish nation was formed. And uh, part of Abraham being the father of many peoples starts right here. Starts with the descendants of Ishmael. But my covenant... I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. And so when he finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Now it's curious to me because this whole dialogue now uh, seems to be between Abraham and God, and Sarah uh, is not participating directly, at least as far as is recorded in the text. Perhaps uh, she gets it secondhand through Abraham, or maybe she was there listening. We don't know. But when we turn over to chapter 18 now, and I'm not going to read all 33 verses for you, but we do have um, the laughter here and we have the, uh, the issues. Now, like I say, last week we touched on this from Abraham's perspective when the Lord showed up and these angels, they're on their way to Sodom. They're on their way to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And uh, this is when he says, uh, please uh, don't pass me by and if I have found favor in your sight. And uh, so they're going to stop, they're going to eat, they're going to fellowship on the way to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. All right. So in the process of that dinner, and and I laugh every time I read this because this is so typical of husbands and wives. The husband's got this grandiose plan and then all of a sudden he has to rush inside the tent real quick and see if Sarah has anything she can feed these guys with. And so she has to quickly whip some dinner together here. And um, so they eat. And then in verse 9, they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, they're in the tent. He said, I will surely return to you at this time next year. This is verse 10. And behold, Sarah, your wife will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door, which was behind him. And now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing. And Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I have become old, shall I have pleasure? And uh, this is, again, part of our clue that those uh, marital activities were not really recent in, uh, in their marriage uh, in these recent years. Shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh? Saying, Shall I indeed bear a child since I am when I am so old. And, and I, I love the pattern that we have here. I love repeatedly, God loves asking questions. When he asks, you know, Adam and Eve, where are you? When he asks Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He loves asking questions. Why, why did your wife laugh? Because it's in asking these questions that the Lord then can interact with his disciples, with his children, and, and ascertain whether they're processing the, uh, the doctrine that they should be learning from these episodes. So why did she laugh? saying, shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you at this time next year and Sarah will have a son. So Sarah denied it, however, saying I did not laugh for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. Now, like I say, if we didn't have the book of Hebrews, Hebrews tells us that she had faith. She considered that he was faithful who had promised. But Genesis doesn't give us a hint of that. And in fact, in Genesis, it almost seems skeptical on her part 
Um, but it seems now, since we have the divine commentary on this, looking back, that yes, she did indeed laugh. And what bothered her, though, was that he heard her laughing. And that made her, uh, I guess, self-conscious in that regard as well. He said, no, but you did laugh. You did laugh. And so the men rose up from there and off they went. All right, so we'll let it go at that, I think. The um, Otherwise, I'm going to get lost in the uh, six prayers that Abraham offered when it should have been seven. And he should have just boiled it down from 50 down to one to say, Lord, there's one righteous man in Sodom. His name was Lot, and uh, and he's my knucklehead nephew. Can you take care of him there? All right. Now, we get to chapter 21. And uh, Isaac is born. So uh, the Lord took note of Sarah, as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. He said it, he's going to do it. And it doesn't matter that she's 90 years old. It doesn't matter that Abraham's 100 years old. It doesn't matter that he hasn't been functional for a while. He was functional. They had relations. She got pregnant. And uh, here it is. And they didn't have sonograms, they didn't, they, you know, but they knew it was a boy and they knew his name was Isaac. Because God had promised. And as soon as she's pregnant, I think as soon as Abraham's functional again, they knew that God was going to make good on this promise. So she conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time of which God had spoken. And Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. And uh, and this here. Sarah in verse 6 says, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? <laughs> Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. You know, there's, there's certain women that you just don't expect to see on that aisle in the grocery store and uh, looking for the baby formula or looking for that. You just assume, is that for your, your grandson, your great-grandson? And here she is nursing the baby in, uh, in this blessing. But now comes the conflict. And this too is a remarkable thing. And, and I think it comes back to why the Lord asked Abraham about Sarah's laughing. Why didn't the Lord just pull Sarah out of the tent and say, why did you laugh? He asked Abraham, why is Sarah laughing? Just like in the garden, he asked, he asked Adam, where are you? He didn't go looking for Eve or Adam and Eve. He looked for Adam and said, where are you? What is this you have done? He's going to the accountable party. It's the man in the marriage. It's the husband in the home. It's the father in the family. Why did Sarah laugh? And so when Sarah starts having these issues with Hagar, uh, Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, mocking. And I admit, this is an experience I'm not familiar with, that the, the polygamy aspect of what happens when you have a wife and a concubine and they both have children, and how do the dynamic work there and the politics between those women. Uh, I've, I will never experience that or know that, but I can read about it and I can ponder that this is not good. <laughs> and Abraham, he's got to be the shepherd. He's got to be the leader. And that means he's got to shepherd Sarah. He's got to shepherd Hagar. He's got to be the spiritual leader, and he's in a no-win situation here. So um, she said to Abraham, drive out this maid and her son, for the son of this maid shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. And the matter distressed Abraham greatly because 
of his son. And so here's a situation that's not unique in the history of marriage is that uh, the wife is struggling and the husband doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know what to say. He doesn't know how to deal with it. The good news is, is that God's got a plan. And if the husband's smart, he's going to find out what God's plan is and, uh, and get on board. So God said to Abraham, do not be distressed because of the lad and your maid. Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her, for through Isaac your descendants shall be named. And so God in his grace is going to turn cursing into blessing. He's going to overrule. And even though they had disobeyed some 14 years prior, 16 years prior, whatever it is, they had disobeyed uh, that God's going to have provision and Isaac's going to be removed. Hagar's going to be removed. There's going to be peace in the, uh, in the valley, peace in the, in the tent, in the, in the homestead here for Abraham and Sarah to raise this child. And um, so it's through Isaac your descendants shall be named. And the son of the maid I will make a nation also because he is your descendant. And so he sends them out. And this is the, this is the, the issue here with Sarah. Now, she laughed, she denied laughing, and then she defended laughter is what she's doing here. And her defense of laughter is to get Ishmael out of there. That he can't be a competitor. He can't be, uh, he can't be threatening the inheritance that Isaac is entitled to because Isaac is the son of promise. Isaac is the heir of the Abrahamic covenant. And that's what we have there. Now, what else can we do with this chapter? Well, the apostle Paul got a lot of mileage out of, uh, the child of, uh, the faith of Abraham and the child of promise. And so, uh, if you're going to be studying these portions of Genesis, uh, I recommend that you also uh, include Romans chapter 4, Galatians chapter 3, Galatians chapter 4, and you get the divine commentary here as well. That the testimony of Abraham and the testimony of Sarah, that uh, that testimony of their faith bears fruit, and it bears fruit for us today. And these are the passages of Scripture that help us to to uh, to understand this. Romans chapter four. Romans chapter four. And this is just so genius of God. The way He put this together. The way He uses the Bible stories and then the theological developments. This is why uh, Good Seed International, for example, they love the, the, the children's stories. They love providing the, 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 the little lamb uh, figures and, the, and all of the things in order to tell those stories. Because in telling those stories, you then have the venue to communicate the doctrine, to relate the theology. And this is what God himself does from the Old Testament to the New Testament. All right, so here's some commentary. Maybe we wouldn't have been so observant to glean these things in just in reading Genesis by itself. Well, we have help. We have answers outside of Genesis. And I keep joking because, uh, you know, one of these days I want to create a multi-billion dollar international organization and I'm going to call it Questions in Genesis, right? And because not every answer comes in Genesis, that many of the questions remain questions in Genesis until we get the answers elsewhere in the whole counsel of the Word of God. In any event, Romans 4.18, in hope against hope, this is the promise to Abraham and the, the issue here related to faith. And so uh, it says, in hope against hope, in hope against hope. And, uh, you know, verse 13 says, the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be the heir of the world was not through the law, 
but through faith. See, and this is what's being illustrated here in this chapter. And so um, we see it. In hope against hope he believed so that he might become a father of many nations. According to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. And without becoming weak in faith, without becoming weak in faith. Now this is on Abraham's part. I think Sarah had a moment where she got weak. She laughed. When she was busted for her laughter is when she repented and then she believed that, okay, God, you said it, I believe it. You're the faithful one. And uh, if he knew about my laughter while I was hiding in the tent, he probably knows what else is going to happen next. And uh, that was her moment to get back uh, in fellowship, we would say. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body now as good as dead. There's that phrase again. Um, since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Okay? Far past the time of childbearing, far past the time of the, 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 the monthly cycles and all the things that would indicate that perhaps she was still capable of having a, uh, a conception. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God." being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. And this is the key. This is how we all apply. This is how we obtain our own testimonies of faith, is that God has made a promise, and we can, should we choose to take that promise and then relate it to what we're looking at in the human realm, if we stop there, we're doomed. If we stop there, if this verse stopped with Abraham contemplating his impotent body and contemplating how old his wife was, if that's where he stopped, then he never would have proceeded by faith. But he went past that now to consider, okay, I got my impotence on this side and I've got the sovereignty and omnipotence of God on this side. So God's omnipotence and my impotence, and he balanced those on the scales and said, God is able, God can do this. So with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. So this is our procedure. What do we do when we're claiming promises? We're waiting for those promises to be fulfilled. What do we do? We grow strong in faith. We just keep our eyes on the Lord. We keep growing in the word of God. We just study even more. We pray even more. And we give glory to God. And we say, all right, Lord, we haven't had the answer yet, but I know it's on the way. Thank you for not answering too soon because I'm a naturally impatient fellow. Uh, so I appreciate that, uh, that you're not on my timetable, that, uh, that you are wise enough to provide in uh, the wisdom of your delay and not the, uh, the impatience of my right now uh, necessity. All right. So he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. So therefore, it was credited to him as righteousness. This is what we deal with. When we get to Galatians, we find a couple of chapters now that, that uh, testify to Abraham and Sarah. Galatians 3 and Galatians 4. Galatians 3 and Galatians 4. And I find it interesting. So here in Galatians 3, starting in verse 7 and taking you down to the end of the chapter, and uh, the recognition of Abraham here as the father. Uh, Abraham believed God, was reckoned to him as righteous. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. 
All right? It's not law. It's promise. It's faith. And we, that's what we want to learn from. That's what we want to apply. And he becomes the, uh, the father of, of uh, the faithful in this, in this way. Um, I'm going to get past this. Get down now to chapter 4. And look what he does here. <laughs> he, uh, he uses the two children and he allows himself to slip into an allegory, something that uh, too many people these days try to throw into every passage of Scripture. They want to allegorize everything from Genesis to Revelation. But here is one of the rare places in Scripture where God himself has inspired an allegory, where it's put in there, where we can look at Isaac and Ishmael and what they represent. And we should learn from that. What they represent, as Ishmael represents no faith, as Ishmael represents human effort, as he represents what we do through, uh, apart from faith with our own human effort. Isaac, of course, represents faith and what we do when we stop trying to take care of things ourselves and when we, when we watch what God does in his faithfulness. And uh, so we see this here. Tell me, you who want to be under law, do you not listen to the law? For it was written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. But the, the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh. I would say in carnality, by human effort, apart from faith. And the son by the free woman through the promise. This is allegorically speaking. And then he proceeds from there to say, learn from the example of these two women and these two sons. So how do you want to proceed? You want to proceed in freedom? That's called grace. You want to proceed under bondage, legalism? That's a horrible way to proceed. And to me, that, uh, where was that? Was that in three one that rhetorical question when he said, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? That, that is so telling to me because it's unthinkable for Paul in grace, the idea that a believer saved by grace would chuck grace to the side and, and embrace legalism. Like who would do that? Who in their right mind would do that? You must be under some kind of a spell. Who has bewitched you? Because that's the only thing that would motivate anybody in Paul's mind to abandon the glories of grace and return to uh, issues of legalism or issues of law. Anyway, so that was what we're looking at there. Now, allegorically speaking, these two sons, we have the son of human effort, we have the son of faith, and we have the contrast here that's being put forth. And we've got to recognize this. We've got the option in our walk. When we're commanded to walk in the light, uh, well, that's a command and we can volitionally obey it or we can volitionally turn to darkness and commit and, uh, you know, walk in carnality and try to achieve things through human effort. We can try to achieve things in the flesh. And uh, obviously that's not what the Lord would have us to do. We are children of promise. And so we should be walking on that basis. Also, Sarah had a testimony in 1 Peter. Sarah is the example for all wives in their submission to their husbands as unto the Lord, 1 Peter 3.6. And um, I think when people pay attention to this, I've heard uh, grumblings, um, not here of course, nobody here grumbles, but I've heard <laughs> other women in other settings, critical of 1 Peter 3, which is a shame because this is, this is a glorious passage for every woman. But they think that it's unbalanced. They think that, 
that the women are getting beat up here in verses 1 through 6, and then husbands just get that little verse 7 all by itself, and that just seems out of proportion. It seems, uh, you know, outrageous that uh, the women are going to be preached at for six verses and the man gets off with just a single verse there. Well, that's not, look closer, you'll understand, because it says you husbands in the same way. So they get all of verses one through six and verse seven. As far as that goes, the men are actually getting hit harder in this, uh, in this way. So... Uh, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands that, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the Word. And again, the Bible's just giving us all these illustrations. I'm sure uh, you know, any, any marriage in the history of marriage has observed uh, seasons or times or episodes uh, with, a, with a disobedient husband and a wife wondering, well, what do I do now? What do I do now? Well, uh, remain uh, submissive as unto the Lord, and your husband can be one without a word as uh, by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. So he's not hungry for teaching. He's not in church. He's not under the pastor's authority. He's not growing. He's not going to crack a Bible, but he sees you. You may be the only Bible he sees until this season uh, runs its course and God gets him through it and his, the hand of God's discipline wakes him up. So praise God for that. Anyway, it says uh, your adornment must not merely be external braiding, you know, not merely, nothing wrong with looking nice, but it's your, it's your inner beauty, your soul beauty, that's going to win him back from the darkness. In the same way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God, who hoped in God. Remember, when you are submitting as unto the Lord, you're submitting to the Lord, you're submitting to the husband, yes, but it's as unto the Lord. You're hoping in God used to adorn themselves being submissive to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. And you might recall a couple weeks ago um, some of Abraham's stupidity. Uh, she, he did that whole she's my sister thing in, in uh, Egypt. And Pharaoh ended up taking Sarah, putting her in his harem, you know, when the boneheaded husband makes dumb choices, sometimes the, the wife and the children are paying a steep price, a terrible price. But she stayed faithful and she kept her eyes on the Lord. She kept her hope in the Lord. And God got her out of there. God got her back to where she needed to be. And um, we, grow through these, we grow through these tough times together. You husbands in the same way. So everything that was in verses 1 through 6, now flip it upside down and apply it to the men. So that if now the the woman is out of the will of God in darkness and carnality, and the husband is walking by faith, live with your wives in an understanding way as with the weaker vessel. Since she, as a woman, show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. And I think it's powerful that uh, the woman is to be without a word, but the man better be communicating because it's the communication that's going to reach her soul. She needs to be communicated with and that your prayers will not be hindered. And we understand that. The man may not want to. His tendency is just to clam up and shut up and, and do the silent treatment. And that's not what God's calling for you to do. So we have the example there. 
Hebrews reveals Sarah's faith considerations in a way that Genesis leaves in question. And as I said, this statement of her faith is not recorded in Genesis. The commentary, if it wasn't the Holy Spirit inspiring it in Scripture, I wouldn't believe it. If we didn't have Hebrews 11... I mean, just we, we read it, right? We read Genesis just a little bit ago, chapter 17, chapter 18, chapter 21. We saw her laughing and we saw her denying laughing. But this text says, she considered him faithful who had promised. That's a faith testimony I didn't get out of Genesis. There's not, that's not an answer in Genesis. That's a question in Genesis with an answer in Hebrews. She considered him faithful who had promised. And like I say, if, if this text wasn't here and I'm sitting, maybe I'm listening to a pastor preaching out of Genesis and he came across with this uh, theory, I'd say, well, that's your opinion. Okay, That's your theory. Uh, I'm not sold. I'm not sold because I don't see it in the text. But here I see it in the text. And that's a blessing for us. That's a blessing for us. And I think we've got uh, multiple encounters with that. We're going to have more of them coming up in the, in the next couple of weeks. But Hebrews reveals Sarah's faith considerations in a way that Genesis leaves in question. So thank God we have it. So we have this example here and we can then go back with a hindsight. We can reread Genesis with uh, the perspective of Hebrews in our thinking and, uh, and be blessed again. So we have, we have, that's why we got to rightly divide the word of truth. That's why you compare scripture to scripture. That's why when you study to show yourself approved, you're taking facts and things. You're not cherry picking to make the Bible say what you want it to say, but you are inductively scouring all of scripture. You want to see everything that the, the Bible has to say about Sarah, for example. And so what do you end up with? You end up with Genesis, Romans, Galatians, 1 Peter, and Hebrews. Okay? And so that you can have an inductive study of Sarah and the birth of Isaac pertaining to these things. And uh, thank goodness we have Hebrews now to give us the testimony related to her faith, because I don't know, we, we would not have seen that if, uh, if all we had was Genesis. And stay tuned, too, because um, there are other hints here. Um, have we looked at uh, Abraham and the city yet? Yes. In verse 10, he was looking for the city. Remember this? This was last week. Were you paying attention or were you sleeping last week? All right. He was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Find that for me in Genesis, would you? It's not there. There's not a reference to this city with foundations. There's not a reference for this any time that God repeatedly keeps giving him the Abrahamic covenant in the different iterations of the different stages and the different things. But it's recorded here. And so I, I believe we're not on shaky ground. We're not in the speculation territory when we are doing an Old Testament study and we consider that those believers had more information available to them than we usually give them credit for. That they had a lot more information available to them than we understand. See, we saw that with Enoch earlier in the chapter as well. Enoch was a prophet in the seventh generation. He prophesied of the, of the second advent of Jesus Christ. Well, how in the world did Enoch know that without an Old Testament and a New Testament? He had no scripture, but he prophesied about the second advent of Jesus Christ. We'll have some other examples of this as well.
All right. So just jot yourself some notes on these things because these are the glimpses that were given. Abraham was looking for a city. Uh, Jesus testified that Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He rejoiced to see my day. It's in John chapter 8. When did Abraham see the day of the Lord? When did he see the revelation of Jesus Christ? Genesis doesn't tell us, but Jesus admitted it, talking to the Pharisees in John chapter 8. So Sarah, Hebrews reveals Sarah's faith considerations in a way that Genesis leaves in question. I like the expression faith considerations. Faith considerations. Because a lot of times you and I will be accused of a blind faith. You and I will be confused that faith is an alternative to thinking. <laughs> All right? And usually it's one of these faithless, uh, smarty pants, uh, atheists of some sort. And they'll accuse you because you don't know how to think that you just blindly uh, have a faith in that silly God or the silly Bible or the silly pastor or what have you. And when they, if we let them get away with that premise, uh, we've lost the debate before it even starts. So don't let them get away with the premise. Faith is rational. It's reasonable. Faith is a thinking process because faith is the soul of man that is being persuaded by the promises of God. And having been persuaded, you are then trusting not the, the thing spoken, but the person speaking And so it is rational, and there is a thought process. And God wants you to think. We're expected to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. So if we're to love God with our mind, that means we better be thinking about what He has said. We can examine the evidence, and we can place our faith accordingly, as we have been persuaded. God is never asking anybody to believe based on no evidence. Honestly, it's the atheist that has more faith on less evidence than we do which is why Norman Geisler wrote that marvelous book that he wrote that I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. Because an atheist has to have more faith with less evidence than you and I have in the Scriptures. And so the faith considerations. She considered. So it's by faith she considered. I love that. You and I need to do that. And realize, of course, in our, in our moments, we may grow weak in faith. Abraham didn't. I believe Sarah did, which is why she laughed. And as you consider certain things, you might grow weaker. As you consider certain things, you might grow stronger. As you consider certain things, you might even imagine yourself bailing. Bailing on the Lord, bailing on the church, bailing on your marriage, bailing on whatever, your, your job. It's not a sin to consider it because Jesus considered it. Jesus in the garden said, what shall I say? Let this cup pass from me. He was considering. Now he walked by faith and he never sinned. He never sinned. But I don't believe it's a sin when you're faced with a temptation and you consider what if. Now immediately, of course, when you consider what if, and you realize that's in defiance of the will of God, and you take that thought captive in obedience to Christ Jesus, then you've not sinned. You thought about it. Thinking about it is not a sin. 
Remember, sin has to be conceived. I love the way the book of James speaks of sin as a conception. That we're tempted, we're carried away by our own lust. When lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. Okay? To death and, and that. Anyway, there's a process. And the consideration is what heads towards that process. And I think it's worthwhile that we study this, that we detail this, that we ask ourselves, um, I'm, I'm playing with fire here, I kind of don't want to be thinking those things. That there's things that are not healthy to be thinking about. For a moment the temptation came, I did give it a thought, yes, I gave it a thought, but I'm stopping because I know where my mind will take that thought if I get carried away. So I don't want to get carried away. I want to take that thought captive. And so considering, as we consider the promises, as we consider the problems, we consider the promises, we consider the problems, and then we consider that the one who made the promise, he's going to take care of those problems. That's his business because he made the promise. So I can rest by faith. And I may not know how. I may, I may not know when. And it may be taking a lot longer than I wanted it to take. But as long as I keep considering the promise and the one who made it is faithful, I'm going to grow strong in faith. And I'm going to give glory to God. Even when he finally, at the end of all those prayers, says, you know what? No, because i got something better for you. He told David, no, you can't build the temple. And David worshipped. He said, thank you, Lord. Because his son was going to build the temple. Sometimes when we get those answers, no, uh, it becomes difficult. All right. Verses 13 through 16. We've commented already that it's kind of the pattern here in Hebrews 11 that we'll have a verse or several verses with characters as, as testimonies of faith. And then we'll stop and we'll have a commentary. We'll have the author of Hebrews that gives a commentary. And we, the first one of these was with respect to Enoch. We had the faith testimony of Enoch in verse 5, and then we had a commentary in verse 6. That without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. And so the verse 5, which was the testimony of Enoch, was followed by a verse of commentary, where we had development and doctrine and, and application there pertaining to faith. Here we have a stretch of verses, starting in 13 going through 16. 13, 14, 15, 16. Four verses of commentary as it relates to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob living in tents, to Sarah conceiving and having the baby. All of these died in faith without receiving the promises. Living your whole life praying for something, believing that God will provide it because God has promised to provide it, and then going to physical death and never seeing it in this lifetime. Does that make God a liar? No, because God has promised. He didn't promise in this lifetime. He didn't say when the kingdom was coming. The millennial kingdom is still on the way, and Abraham has a big part of it. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus said, God's not the God of the dead, but of the living. I am the God. Not I was the God. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so these promises are fulfilled. They're just not fulfilled in this life. Can we be faithful unto death? And uh, wait for the next life for the uh, provisions, okay, as he promises and as he provides. So all of these died in faith without receiving the promises. But having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, in other words, take your earthly eyes off and look with spiritual eyes. 
Look with an eternal perspective. Look with divine viewpoint instead of human viewpoint. Stop thinking in just the finite limitations of this mortality. And you can see them from a distance. Having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Right? This is the application for all of us. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. See? And... uh, that wasn't one of the songs in your melody, was it? No, no. Your medley didn't have that one? Okay. You had some other good ones, though. All right. And the, uh, but this is what we have. Having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. An alien in the land of promise. That was his land. But he lived there like an alien. Imagine going to your house and paying yourself rent. Or no, paying somebody else rent. And it's your house. You own it. By promise anyway. But God has not seen fit yet to manifest the fulfillment of that promise. And so Abraham pays cash for the cave of Machpelah and he gets a burial place for Sarah. And he deals with uh, all the folks as, uh, as an alien. Verse 14 says, For those who say such things make it clear they are seeking a country of their own. Those who say such things. So, so here's the commentary, taking it past that example, bringing it to us bringing it to us, bringing it to the original Levitical readers here of the, of the author, but also bringing it to us, those who say such things. Do we say such things? Do we offer the similar testimony that we are aliens and strangers, that we are looking for the next life, not this life? And uh, let's make it clear. Let's make it clear to ourselves. Let's make it clear to one another. And let's make it clear to those that haven't joined us yet in, uh, in the eternal life in Christ Jesus. Indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. That is profound. And when we talk about the patriarchs, when we talk about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we've got a situation there that's unlike the Exodus generation. And we talk about when when they came through the Red Sea, the Exodus generation, there was no going back. Because he redeemed them out of bondage, he brought them into the wilderness, the Red Sea came crashing down, it killed Pharaoh and all the chariots, and there was no going back. They did not have the opportunity to return. Even when they grumbled and wanted to, they didn't have the opportunity to return. God killed them in the wilderness. And so everyone that went through the Red Sea on dry ground, not one of them went back. Theologically, that's, that's critical. I think it's a marvelous pattern of our, it's a, it's a picture, typology of our salvation, right? Salvation's a one-way door. We're delivered out of bondage from sin, and none of us is ever going back. It's a one-way door. We're saved in Christ. Now, the picture of the patriarchs, though, is different than the Exodus and the, and the theology there. Because with Abraham, Isaac, and, and uh, Jacob, Abraham came from Ur of the Chaldees, and he had opportunity to return. Isaac had opportunity to return. I'm going to show you the passages um, next week. We'll get into the, uh, the urgency Abraham would not let Isaac go obtain his own wife. He sent the servant, and he was very clear about it, that Isaac was not to return to Haran. He was not to go to that land. And and, uh, I think when we take that chapter in Genesis and we look at this, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. And there was a snare there, and Isaac was guarding, or Abraham was guarding Isaac from stepping in that snare. 
We'll talk about that next week. All right, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. You know, some lands are better than others, and uh, heaven is better than earth, okay? A better country that is a heavenly one. And, uh, you know, and all the reasons why the land of Canaan was the land flowing with milk and honey, and why it was a marvelous land, and all the, the reasons why they wanted to live there, even those earthly reasons had to be set aside. It's not as good as it's going to be. It's going to be a whole lot better when this city arrives. When this city arrives, it's going to transform this land. We have that coming up as well. A heavenly, a better, a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. Prepared a city. And so we saw it in verse 10. Abraham was looking for it. We see it here in verse 16. God is preparing it. We're going to see it again two or three more times in the book of Hebrews. We're going to see it in Revelation. The heavenly Jerusalem that descends out of heaven, adorned as a bride, is adorned for her husband. This heavenly city. The things we have to look forward to. All right. It's curious to me we have glimpses here. And I'm just going to put these out here and, and we'll chew on it some. Look at all these examples. I should have uh, should have done these in reverse order. <laughs> all right. Because the point is going to be made five different times. And starting with Jesus in John 8, uh, also the story of the rich man and Lazarus there in Luke 16. These glimpses of Abraham and his faith, the glimpses that we have of Abraham looking beyond this earth, looking beyond the physical territory that he walked around. He was looking for the city with foundations. He was looking for the city coming out of heaven. And Abraham had a faith to look beyond creation. We even have a story of Abraham. I realize Lazarus and the rich man kind of to get top billing in that, in that uh, pericope heading. But it is Abraham's bosom after all. And Abraham is the one that speaks divine viewpoint in that chapter. Not a peep comes out of Lazarus anywhere in that chapter. And so in John 8 we have Jesus giving a testimony of Abraham's faith. In Luke 16 Jesus also detailed a post-mortem encounter with Father Abraham. Ministry that Abraham has in Lazarus, but also with the rich man. The book of Hebrews here that references the patriarch's faith and uh, their opportunity to return. Their opportunity to return. That's To me that's extraordinary because this is what fundamentally why Hebrews got written. Hebrews was written with a concern that these uh, Levites were going to go back to Mosaic law. That these Levites uh, that, that were receiving the letter, I mean, we're reading it today, but there was a real group of real people back in the day that, that this author was writing to. And the danger of falling away from New Testament Christianity, returning back to Old Testament Judaism, was very real. And uh, they were clearly, they were priests, they were Levites. For them to return back to the temple, uh, is, 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 is the warning of what you know, the, the whole book was being written about. 
So when the author here says, you know what, those patriarchs could have gone back if they wanted to, I think that's a powerful exhortation right there, hitting these people right between the eyes. But they didn't, and that's the point. And then the city with foundations designed and built by God, transforming their earthly land into a better heavenly land. All of these are glimpses we get in the New Testament that are making commentary back in the Genesis narrative that we don't have a clue in the Genesis narrative about. And I like that. To me, that's, uh, that's a reminder that the secret things belong to God, but the things revealed belong to us and our children forever. And that uh, everything that he's revealed in the canon of Scripture, I'm accountable for. I've got to study the whole council, Genesis to Revelation, everything in between. But the things that aren't revealed, I have to content myself with not exceeding what is written. I have to content myself with just accepting what's revealed and making my application from there. And uh, if I want to venture into realms of speculation, then I'm, I'm departing from my commission to feed the flock. Because uh, nobody showed up this morning to find out what my opinions and theories are. They want to find out what, you know, what does the Word of God have to say? What saith the Lord? And learning from the truth from the Word of God. All right? So, uh, to tie this together, uh, let's just look at uh, let's look at John 8, Luke 16, and then we'll be out of time, I'm sure. John 8. And boy, this just opens so many questions up. This is uh, a chapter where they're arguing about fatherhood, and uh, he says, you're of your father, the devil. There's a lot of confrontation in this chapter. Um, you will know the truth. The truth will make you free. Boy, that upset him. And uh, he said, I'm not speaking on my own initiatives. The father gave me these things, so I'm speaking them. But you'll notice in verse 33, they answered him, we are Abraham's descendants. We've never yet been enslaved to anyone. That's a lie. How delusional are they? How is it that you say we will be made free? And he works on this. He says, you know, I know that you're Abraham's descendants, verse 37. Yeah, you're racially Jewish. Yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. That's not very Abrahamic. (laughs) What are you doing this for? I speak the things which I have seen with my father, therefore you do the things which you've heard from your father. And each time this confrontation gets a little bit deeper, a little bit sharper, they answer to him, Abraham is our father just repeating themselves. He said, yeah, I know that. But he says, if you are Abraham's children, then do the deeds of Abraham. As it is, you're seeking to kill me, a man who told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. Abraham didn't do this. Why are you doing it? You are doing the deeds of your father. He keeps hitting them with this, and they're, they're liking it less and less every time he comes back to it. You notice that? I don't know what Jesus would have done with our day and age when, you know, audiences vibrate and then the PC culture takes hold and speakers have to get real careful with what they say next. I don't know, he wouldn't have done that at all. All right. If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God, for I have not come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Now, why do you not understand what I'm saying? It's because you cannot hear my word. You are your father, the devil. You are of your father, the devil. 
See, they're not saved. Yeah, they're racially Jewish. All right, big deal. You must be born again. He told Nicodemus that. He was shocked that Nicodemus had no concept of being born again. And he had risen to the pinnacle to be the teacher of Israel. He was foremost among all the, the teachers of the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin. And yet he wasn't even saved. He acted all weird about being born again, like, I'm too old to crawl into my mother's womb again. How does this happen? And uh, Jesus said, are you the teacher of Israel and you don't understand? You must be born again. And he's telling the Pharisees, telling these guys the same thing here. You're of your father, the devil. So uh, further down, uh, you are a Samaritan and a demoniac (laughs) in verse 48. And uh, he just keeps teaching the truth, keeps teaching the truth. Verse 52, the Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died. This is when he says, uh, he who uh, keeps my word will never see death. Now we know you have a demon. Nobody lives forever. Even Abraham died. The prophets died. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Surely you're not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Who do you make yourself out to be? Hmm. Yeah, who do you make yourself out to be? Anyway, um, Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. I'm not making myself out to be anything. The Father's doing this. The Father glorifies me of whom you say he is our God. If you had not come to know him, I'm sorry, you have not come to know him, but I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I'll be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word what it comes down to, folks. They're not saved. They hate God. They hate His Word. And so they hate us. Now, your father Abraham, notice, your father Abraham, after he just told him it's your father the devil, there's still an opportunity for him to become their father, for God to become their father. Anyway, your racial father, ancestor Abraham, rejoiced to see my day He saw it and was glad. All right, so that's a whole ton of context just to get to that one verse in verse 56. Abraham rejoiced to see my day. There was prophetic revelation available to Abraham. He had an appreciation for, I believe, first and second advent of Jesus Christ. It wasn't always divided between the two advents. They just saw the day of the Lord. And Abraham saw the day of the Lord and he rejoiced. He saw the city with foundations. He saw Revelation 21 and 22. He saw the the coming kingdom. A testimony of his faith. Well, I'm out of time. Heavenly Father, I thank you for Sarah and Abraham. I thank you for their example. I thank you, Father, that they went through things that every marriage goes through. We we can learn from these examples. Um, If the husbands are trying to figure out how to live with their wives in an understanding way, We may never understand our wives, but we can live with them in an understanding way, Father. And our wives can submit, not because we earn it or deserve it, but because the Lord is faithful. And I thank you for that. I rejoice in the testimony of Hebrews, the recognition that believers can walk by faith, and they had far less provision than we have today. They had a much smaller canon, in some cases no canon of Scripture at all. We have the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the position that we have as royal family of God seated at your right hand with the mind of Christ. Father,
I pray that we, uh, to whom much is given shall much be required. I pray that we are faithful in what we've been given, that we study to show ourselves approved, that we consider the things that we're called to consider, and that we walk by faith in, in every consideration. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.